Hello, welcome to the first ever Cellular Cinema podcast. Uh, today we'll be speaking with Travis Wilkerson, um, and you can subscribe and support us as we go forward on Patreon. All proceeds go directly to the artist. Thank you. So what I was thinking about is I was thinking about how weird it is that we're in this situation where each of us is in our own place, trapped in our own location. Um, and uh, the, the funny thing about that is, although it's very specific to this set of circumstances, the notion of work emerging from where we are and what we have available to us is not unique to the situation. It's just this is a specific set of sort of material circumstances. And so I was trying to think about the ways in which the works that I shared um, and the sort of larger issues are related to this notion of what is specific to a site. Um, and so I want to think about a couple of things to begin with. So um, you can see that, yes? Yes. Okay, so it's this funny quote, and it's from the uh, Book of Laughter and Forgetting by Milan Kundera. Um, and it's this quote, the struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. I'll acknowledge it's obviously patriarchal uh, problematics, but I wanted to keep to the actual quote as opposed to the struggle of humankind or something like that, which would make more sense. Um, what I'm trying to suggest there is that sort of how we understand history and right, we're in this historic moment, so it's particularly useful, I feel like. But how we understand history is a lot about how we understand the structures of power that exist now, how they were erected in the past, and how they might be challenged in the future. Um, and a lot of that has to do with this notion of, of memory and the notion of memory being lost. Uh, and what I mean about that is especially about the memory of resistance to power. So for me, I was drawn to this quote because I thought about how much of my work is interconnected to this notion of places that I've lived, I've explored, and what I've discovered time and again is that there's deep resistance to power everywhere that I've ever lived and everywhere that I've ever traveled. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is um, described thusly. Um, it often is the opposite. It's often the situation that um, there's a notion, for example, that we in the U.S. tend to be taught that um, the, the history of the left in the U.S. is very weak, um, and it's very um, uh, disparate, and it is an example of a place where there wasn't a fully developed left. And I think that isn't true at all. I think, in fact, it's a, an expression of the depth of repression in U.S. history that we would have that notion. And so it's part of the reason I'm drawn to this quote, that I think all of my work is, in a sense, a notion that recovering memory is a, is a way to recover power. It's a way to challenge existing power. So that's the notion that I had. Um, the second quote is a quote that you will encounter at the beginning of the film by Chris Marker called The Last Bolshevik. And it says, it is not the literal past that rules us, it is images of the past. Um, and I think that that's a sort of dialectical argument that I'm interested in right now. I think there is an element of truth, but I think there's also an element of distruth or untruth to it. Um, and so during the course of this discussion, I'm going to try to deal with both sides of it, that it is both a literal past that rules us. It is also an image of the past that rules us and they interact in a way that is kind of complex and problematic. Um, so I'm gonna think about sites now. Um, and I eventually will go to the full screen when we um, start showing videos, but for the time being, I'm just gonna keep talking. Um, when I think about sites, I'm gonna think about first and foremost, the site of my parents um, and where they come from and the relationship of that to my work. So this is my parents um, at a very young age. This is before my uh, birth. My mother, I think, had, uh, um, had I think they had conceived me, but I think she was very, very early on in the pregnancy. She was a teenager. My father was in his early 20s. Um, my father had just returned from the Vietnam War where he was a helicopter pilot. Um, and he won the Distinguished Flying Cross as a helicopter pilot. But he also was deeply traumatized by his experience in the war and believed it was a mistake and believed that the U.S. war was um, colonial um, and um, imperial and racist and that he had um, re deeply regretted his involvement in the war. He had volunteered for the war and he regretted it afterwards. He met my mother as a barely 17, 16, 17 year old uh, girl in a town that he was stationed in Alabama, in uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama. She was lived in a town near there. Um, and my mom had grown up in a family full of people who had been um, 
politically trained to be racist, um, to be politically engaged racists, to be uh, involved in organizations that were connected to racism. And she felt as strongly as my father felt about the war that her experiences growing up in the South were very traumatic and incorrect. And, and so she very much wished to um, rebel against them. And part of the reason she was drawn to my father when she met him um, and they met each other at such a young age, but he was about four or five years older than she was, was that he had been through this experience, which confirmed kind of her assumptions that a lot of the stories that had sort of dictated her childhood and so forth had been false and wrong. Um, and she didn't wish to participate in them anymore. So so when she found out that she was pregnant with me at the age of 17, barely 18, um, they decided to leave the South um, and, um, and settle in the American West uh, because they thought they could have a kind of fresh start without uh, the access to a lot of the kind of racism and violence and, and bigotry that they both associated with their, their childhoods. My father was raised in the Chicago area, but again, his, his experience in the war was a very deeply um, significant one for him. Um, and so I grew up in this family that had kind of tried to, to sort of uh, escape or flee a certain uh, legacy of oppression and violence um, to uh, greater or lesser degrees and ended up landing in the American West, which is a place of many of these um, um, sort of uh, locations of deep uh, catastrophic um, genocidal violence uh, and a kind of ignorance of it or a sort of kind of willful ignorance of it, much like the places that have been described. I'm trying to resist my desire to touch my face because I'm told over and over again that that's a catastrophic error in the current period. So forgive me for <laughs> that's not on purpose. It's just uh, used to talking. Um, so sort of growing up in this family where sort of um, anti-racism, anti-war became the kind of like dominant sort of uh, cultural uh, elements, foundations of my family. This really shaped my life in many, many different ways. So I'm gonna jump ahead now to another location, another site, because I think it then will relate to more of the discussion we're having now, which is that I found myself uh, in the early 1990s traveling to Cuba. Um, and I wanted to travel to Cuba for reasons that were very interconnected with the things that I already talked about, which is that I had kind of had the sense that Cuba was a place that was very different from the the sense that I had been that had been described to me growing up. A place that I had the notion was deeply repressive, um, deeply unequal, um, uh, uh, frightening, um, uh, in, extremely impoverished and dysfunctional. And I, I saw a series of films when I was in college, uh, most significantly the films by Tomas Gutierrez Alea, such as uh, Memories of Underdevelopment that showed a society that was so much more complex than what I had encountered in discourse in U.S. society that I thought, I got to go figure this out. So in my, in my early mid-20s, I started trying to organize ways to go to Cuba. And in um, about 1993, 1994, I went to Cuba the first time and I went to go work on an organic farm because that was the only way I could get down there um, under the, the sort of uh, very onerous conditions of uh, blockade and embargo. Um, and so I was able to go and, and work on this organic farm for a few weeks and learn more about, at that time, Cuba was faced a with a deeply um, problematic economic crisis, probably not so dissimilar from one that we're all gonna be facing in the coming weeks and months, um, in which the sort of fundamental elements of their society had collapsed with the collapse of the Soviet Union because that was their primary trading partner. Um, and so I went down to work on this organic farm because the organic farm was an attempt to sort of resurrect Cuban agriculture in the context of an absence of um, uh, um, petroleum-based products that you would use to, to, to farm, uh, which was the, the way that they had established their farming uh, since the early 1960s. And um, the experience working on the farm was very fascinating on many different levels, which is not that's beyond the scope of our discussion today. Um, but what was interesting to me about it was that I immediately became convinced that the Cubans were innovating in a kind of absence of resource, right? That they were creating agricultural ideas in a place where they had sudden they had suddenly like a lack of opportunities to be able to develop their um, their agricultural economy in a way that they had for the previous thirty years, and yet somehow they were innovating new ways to do it that were healthier, that were more humane, that were more ecologically sound. Um, and, and so that was very fascinating to me. They were doing it in an absence of resources. And so through the process of being working on that farm, I, I began to develop conversations with the, the neighbors. And the neighbors was the, were, were the members of the, the International Film School in San Antonio de los Manos, which is a, a part of Havana province, but it's in a rural part of Havana province. And so the, the, the farm that I was working at, by coincidence, was just next door to the, to the film school. 
And so in the process of sort of like starting conversations with people at the film school, I began to realize that there was a parallel between what was happening in the agricultural realm and what was happening in the cultural realm, right? Which was that people were innovating ideas about practice that came from an absence of traditional resources and that they were actually developing newer ideas that were radical and important based on this. And so, you know, through this process, I began to have conversations with people at the film school and eventually developed um, sort of some contacts that led me to be able to talk to some of the most influential figures to me. Um, and the most significant would have been that I was able to develop a relationship with Santiago Alvarez. Um, and this would have been in about 1995 or something at this point, I was able to go back and, and, and spend more time, nearly six months working with him. And at that time, you know, so Santiago Alvarez is this funny figure and, and uh, you know, I'll show a little fragment of one of his works in a minute and, and urge everyone to check out his work more broadly. But he was a person who was working in a realm that was traditionally not regarded as a creative or artistic realm. It was a kind of, you know, the newsreel was regarded as a kind of uh, functional realm, as, you know, a place where you would have information about what was happening in society, but not necessarily art. And, and because he was sort of tapped to develop these newsreels for this new revolutionary society, this was, would have been in 1961, 1962, the revolution was, was in 1959. And he was chosen because he was politically reliable, not because he had any sort of cultural experience, but he immediately sort of sensed the opportunity to develop something much more profound than what had been expected of him. And so over the course of the next 30 years, he made almost weekly films. Um, he supervised the production of nearly 1,500 films, and he himself made 700 films and developed a, an extremely radical, extremely innovative uh, process. But the key element of it to me, and I think it relates to our discussion tonight, I think it relates to our reality that we're in at this moment, is that Santiago Alvarez, like many Cubans, but I think taking it to an exceptionally developed degree, had the notion that he would start with what he had available to him, and he would develop what he needed to develop from what he had available to him, as opposed to the other way around. And what I mean by that is that typically with regard to film, we tend to think of that we think, oh, here's the film I wish to make, and here's what I need to make it. And Santiago operated very differently. His way of operating was to say, what do I have available to me? And then what can I make strongly based on what's available to me? So it's a kind of inversion of the plan, the envision of the typical kind of model of American filmmaking and certainly Western filmmaking more broadly. Um, and he produced these extremely radical films kind of out of next next of nothing um, and, and produced these films for many decades. So let's just watch um, a, a sequence from, from a little fragment of, of the film I made about him that's really just uh, very directly about his work. It's a very short fragment. This film is called Accelerated Underdevelopment. Um, which was the the quote that that came from him that he he said that Cuba was a product of accelerated underdevelopment, meaning a kind of a, sort of an irony about the notion of a, a country that had been, had underdevelopment and now was had this sort of rapid period of development in response to that after the revolution. So let's just watch a little bit of this little fragment of that. <laughs> Here were these films that were made. So imagine the context, right? They're, they're not made the way that we think of experimental films now. They were made to show before, uh, in, in the beginning of a cinema. Uh, so there would be a feature. And then before the feature, there would be a documentary short that would be 15 to 20 minutes. And then before that would be a newsreel. So these little tiny films that were sort of engaged with sort of whatever had happened that week. Um, made out of nothing, made out of sort of whatever experimental materials he had available to them. If he was able to, to travel somewhere, he would. If he didn't, he didn't. Um, it, had, it had sort of imagine any style you could imagine from essay to uh, direct cinema to uh, verite to um, reenactment to acted scenes to um, animations to write every single imaginable style would have been explored in Santiago's work. And seeing this work in the context which I saw it, which was 30 years later in uh, the, the situation where um, these films were not conceived of being shown 30 years later, they were conceived of being shown for that week, that month, that year. Um, it was very powerful and it was very interesting to see the work and to see what resonated now for films that had been created urgently, what, what um, was lost altogether. I don't know. I found all these kind of things very fascinating. Um, but more than anything else, kind of what I took from it was the notion that one could produce films with what was available 
to you at a given moment in a given place and that those specific set of circumstances would produce a specific set of approaches and a specific set of ideas, right? So a few years later, uh, I'm, I'm back at my attempt to create work. Um, and in this situation, I'm, I'm thinking about what am I going to make next, right? So I made this early film without any, I didn't go to, to film school for it. Um, I developed the ideas on my own. And so a few years later, I found myself like, okay, well, so I'm kind of a filmmaker now. So I ended up going to graduate school and I went to the graduate school at CalArts. Um, you know, we could talk about that if you wanted, but it's, you know, sort of not that interesting. But the point is that I found it kind of frustrating and I didn't, I, I, the context of like a film school didn't really speak to me and I didn't feel like it was really articulating kind of what I was interested in and what I was trying to do. Um, and so I decided, well, okay, I want to make something else and I kind of want to make it on my own again. Um, and so I decided I would return to the place that I had lived for most of the previous, you know, 10 or 15 years, which was Montana, where I had grown up after I lived in Colorado. So I talked about my family going to Colorado. Um, and I lived in Colorado until I was in my early teens. And then we moved to Montana until, um, and my parents lived there until, and my family lived there until um, I would have been in my uh, early 20s. Um, and we moved to a town which was Butte, uh, and Butte, Montana was a very specific and weird town in Montana. I don't know if people are familiar with it. It was uh, the most significant copper mining uh, town in the world from roughly um, late 19th century into um, probably the 1970s. It was a place where... Um, a lot of political power in Montana was wielded because the the, the, the Anaconda Company was based in, in, in Butte because of its power over the town. Um, so it was a very significant place to go to and to move to in the early 1980s when it was falling apart, when it was um, a kind of uh, early post-industrial uh, nightmare where you had profound uh, ecological degradation, um, and you had uh, the city kind of emptying out of people uh, who were fleeing to try to find their economic solutions elsewhere. And my family, as it happened, was moving into town because my dad wanted to work at the hospital. Um, and so it was a very strange place to grow up. And one of the things that fascinated me, right, was how did this city go from being one of the most significant cities in the American West and therefore the Western world to a place that was just an utter catastrophe. Like what, what, what was this, this, the gap between these two things that I found very fascinating. Um, and one of the main questions I wanted to know over and over again was, well, what, there was a kind of urban legend in Butte, which was about the murder of a union organizer named Frank Little, who was the organizer with um, this, this union called the Industrial Workers of the World, which was also extremely active in Minnesota, by the way, um, especially in the Iron Range. And Frank Little had actually almost been killed in the Iron Range before he ever got to Butte. And I've been interested in making a film about that, but I've never gotten around to it. And I wanted to know, like, was there a relationship between this, like, murder of this famous union organizer in 1917 and then this sort of catastrophic economic situation several decades later? Because somehow it seemed interconnected, right? Uh, and so I tried to explore this question. Um, and, and so, again, in the same sense that I feel like the aesthetics of someone like Alvarez emerged out of this absence of resources uh, in a country under blockade after a revolution, in a funny way, like, my aesthetics in Butte came out of something sort of, again, very specific to the place, which is, okay, well, what do you do when you're trying to make sense of a landscape where most of the kind of significant historical record has been expunged, has been erased, has been neglected, has been repressed, but what you still have is you have the landscape. And so I tried to build a film out of just kind of looking very clearly and directly at the landscape that I had grown up in and tried to make sense of it and then combine it with research in an attempt to answer this basic question, which is how did this country that had, I mean, how did this, this, uh, this city that had been so significant to its country become such a disaster? Now, I'll just add one sort of detail, which is kind of interesting in the current context that we're, we're, we're um, exploring, which is that Butte's sort of like ascendant moment in U.S. history was around World War I. And so this, the, the events of this film mostly deal with 1917. Um, part of the reason that Butte was so significant to World War I was because uh, it said that every bullet fired by every American gun in World War I had copper from the mines of Butte. So they literally pr were producing the metal that was a part of the weaponry that um, led to U.S. Uh, power. And then it's also interesting in the context of something significant, which is that if we think about um, world history, there's no question that, that there's, there's no country that sort of benefited from um, the, the sort of political power shifts in the globe 
um, more than the U.S. from World War I to World War II. There's no other country that can even come close. Uh, the U.S. was a, an insignificant power prior to World War I, and it became a global power in World War I. And obviously, with World War II, became the uh, predominant um, uh, global power. And it's interesting to think about that. And it's especially interesting to think about it with regard to World War I, this ascendant moment, because of the relationship of the pandemic, which, um, so in 1918, there was a, a, an influential, influenza pandemic that um, killed somewhere, and we hear many, many different numbers, but the numbers that I've read, and I've tried to research it to the best of my ability, somewhere between 10 and 50 million people globally. Uh, the pandemic is generally referred to as the Spanish flu, um, but interestingly, it actually originated in Kansas um, on U.S. military bases, and then when the U.S. Uh, deployed large numbers of soldiers um, to Europe at the uh, tail end of World War One to kind of uh, assert its political power at that moment, it, as it happens, um, uh, widely disseminated the presence of this uh, influenza as well. So it's a kind of interesting uh, historical moment, and it's interesting to think about the notion that the flu is called the Spanish flu to this day because the King of Spain supposedly uh, had it, um, although it originated Kansas. So. Um, so the last sequence in particular kind of like gives you a sense of what I was. I was trying to, to turn like, again, an absence of something into a strength as opposed to a limitation, which is, um, it's challenging, right? So, so the last sequence, I had a series of these songs and the songs were transcriptions of folkloric songs that were um, written down in the 1950s by um, uh, Western folklorists who traveled to the town and were trying to document events from the teens. So this was 30 years plus later, People were going into the town and asking people what they remembered was being sung during this particular period of labor strike. <coughs> Excuse me. And what was interesting, right, was that, that you'd read through the folkloric journals and all of them had different views about what was, um, what was the melody for the lyrics. So they would have a common memory of roughly the lyrics, but they would say, oh, it was this particular um, song or it was that particular song. And they would have this difference of opinion. And again, this is 30 plus years after the events themselves. And somehow in the gap of those sort of two pieces of knowledge and information, I thought was kind of the basis of my whole practice, right? Which was, well, so how do you take multiple different accounts of the same uh, piece of information that are contradictory and that are so far removed from the events and somehow make them useful in the present moment? And those are obviously <coughs> complex challenges. And so my notion was, well, I had a certain freedom, therefore, to try to reinsert the lyrics into new music um, because there was already an argument about what the music was. And so it felt like it gave me freedom to be able to do that. And so um, I spent a lot of time trying to find, sort of like, I would break down the lyrics and then I would try to find music that somehow could rhythmically make sense and then figure out if it did make sense, would those people let me use it? And in this case, um, it was an old song from Lowe that they were um, willing to let me use. Um, and, but there was, you know, many other examples, but the notion was not about like just a sequence that was, you know, clever or something like that. It was, it was my attempt, at least my goal was to sort of, again, create meaning out of an absence of something and kind of collide it with the present moment to try to create some meaning that made sense for the future. Um, and that's kind of central to my practice for, uh, for a long time. Um, and um, it's always been very connected to the specific um, events of the place um, and, um, and its own sort of. So, you know, I finished a series of films about Butte um, and then kind of like, I'm going to jump ahead now because I want to figure out a way I want to keep track of time and I don't want us to lose uh, all time altogether. And obviously I really want us to have a discussion about what's happening right now more than anything else. So um, let's jump ahead another 10 or 15 years, right? And, and I decided that I wanted to make another film that was kind of about a question that I had that was more personal in this case, um, and I'm going to go ahead and do this, more personal in this case to my own family. Um, and that was the question of another murder and its effect on, um, on society. But in this case, it was a murder that was perpetrated by a member of my own family against, um, against a, a person who I, I still know very little about, honestly. Um, his name was Bill Spann. He was a black man um, who lived in rural, um, uh, sort of the area outside of Dothan, Alabama, where my family came from. 
And uh, it was a kind of family lore in the same sense that there was like city lore in, in, in viewed about uh, the murder of Frank Little. There was kind of family lore that um, my great grandfather, S.E. Branch of Dothan, Alabama had murdered someone in the 1940s and gotten away with it. And that this person was a black man and that he got away with it in part because he was white and so on and so forth. And, and so, you know, this kind of story had existed in my, um, my awareness and my consciousness for a long time in the family, but I didn't have very much information about it. And then when the um, Zimmerman trial came down around uh, the killing of Trayvon Martin, there was something very interesting to me about that whole story because it was the story that was like gripping, uh, gripping the nation. But it also struck me that it was that certain details of it really reminded me of the family lore that I'd heard, in particular the notion that the justification for the murder um, of this black man by a white man in a position of power was that he was defending himself. Uh, and so, uh, for all those reasons, I got very interested in it at that moment, and I thought, okay, well, is there any way for me to research this um, this event that was many, many decades earlier in which Essie Branch was gone. And the witnesses mostly would have been gone. But somehow it seemed like that the consequences were still present, right? I mean, I'm a filmmaker and I'm making films about history and I have this position of power, this position of um, uh, kind of a, you know, I don't make any money, but it's certainly a certain kind of an elite position in the world versus the kind of family that I wasn't sure what the consequences were for them. And so I was kind of curious um, uh, and, and very terrified, actually, also about what it would be. And so I, I spent four or five years researching this question of, of the murder um, and came to uh, very limited uh, kind of uh, explicit um, understanding. But I think actually through that limit is something really profound. Um, and so this was this film that I made um, a couple of years ago called Did You Wonder Who Fired the Gun, in which you also have access to. Uh, the, the, the portion I wanted to show you now sort of deals with uh, the kinds of things I've been trying to talk about through this whole discussion, which is, so I reached a certain point in research where I was trying to figure out um, what the limits of those research were and what, whether I was ever going to come up with a clear answer. Um, and it led me to uh, a very strange little town, um, even more rural than the town that my family was from, and more disconnected and where social relations were even further back um, in history. So I'm trying to think about how I can be useful to you right now. Uh, I'm trying to think about what do these works have to do with this moment that we're living in, which is weird and extraordinary. Um, I've always tried to make work ever since I first encountered it amongst uh, new Latin American cinema and the Cubans, but in other work as well, that was independent um, of uh, traditional resources uh, that I made films with whatever I had available to me um, about things that were pressing and urgent around me. Um, I didn't let people stop me. Um, I was comfortable with unanswerable questions. I was comfortable with mystery. I was comfortable with um, contradiction, um, dialectic. And that's what I've tried to do ever since um, the whole time. And so now we find ourselves in this moment where, you know, we're facing a kind of invisible enemy. Uh, we find ourselves feeling suspicious of one another because of that invisible enemy. We think that the fundamental structures of our entire society are being ripped to pieces. Um, and I think most of us are probably, I mean, I know until talking to you about film tonight, but I haven't really thought about film very much the last few weeks. I've been mostly thinking about survival and uh, family and um, what comes next. But I think somehow these ideas are useful right now. And I think um, there are ways for us to articulate the, the reality that we're um, trying to wade ourselves through right now and also intervene in some crucial way. Um, social media obviously has this power and force that we couldn't have imagined. And so even in isolation, we can connect. Um, I don't know. I think these things are kind of useful and, 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 and um, encouraging even as we feel so overwhelmed for so many obvious reasons. And so, you know, these two works that I've focused on were both about unanswerable questions um, and their relationship to um, an overwhelming future. Uh, and I think somehow that's connected to where we're at now. Um, I had two or three additional clips, but that's like an hour. So maybe this would be a good place to slow down and see if anybody has any, any questions, so, right?
Does that make sense? Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. So you can either uh, you can type a question in chat and then we'll get to you for sure. Or you can just shout it out if you and, you know, question or also just what's on your mind based yeah. on what has uh, where you are and what's going on in your life and what we have seen and what Travis has been talking about. Questions, comments, uh, topics for discussion, any, any of that. Yeah, I had a question. Um, so you mentioned in um, the documentary about Butte, Montana and the union organizer um, that company history or official history became company history, um, which I know must make it very hard to research um, very far left subjects or sub, or, um, yeah. Um, do you think that with the way that the internet is progressing where more and more of our resources for research or interaction or what have you are being like distilled into like three major companies that uh, likewise is going to happen with the way we can access information online? I mean, I think it's a really, a really valid and interesting question. I mean, have these different structures radically altered the way that we actually have access to information? Like, has it, has it reinforced dominant narratives? Has it undermined them? I mean, what, what I feel like is remarkable is that as technology has shifted and the sort of multiplicity of narratives has kind of expanded out like uh, some kind of crazy infection, um, that the dominant narratives seem stronger than ever in a strange way. And I can't quite explain, I don't fully understand that. So it almost seems as if there's been, like as there's been a dispersion of narratives, then the sort of one or two dominant narratives seem to gain uh, greater traction even, or at least equal traction to the previous period, which I wouldn't have guessed at all. That, in other words, like trying to find an alternative narrative to these dominant historical events, whether they're from like two years ago or 20 years ago or 200 years ago is remarkably similar. And it really, I don't think it has as much to do with information as it has to do with how we interpret the information and then the, the lessons that we draw from the information. And so, for example, you know, when I was trying to get into this Butte stuff, right, and so you have company history, you have official history, and a lot of the narrative is about documents that are erased and um, uh, the official court, court records are gone and then the, then the, the uh, Dashiell Hammett's uh, private files for the Pinkertons are gone and all of these things that are absent, but what, I'm ended up what I ended up being left with is that what's present. What's present is like the town now, right? And that is an incredibly powerful piece of information because it tells you something about social relations. And so what's the relationship of those narratives to the social relations and how do they play against each other and how do they reinforce or undermine one another? And, and what I was struck by is that the sort of process has remained the same. The process is, is, is really about kind of looking at information seeing where the gaps are in the information, making sense of those gaps, and then making interpretive leaps, and then making arguments about those interpretive leaps. So I don't, I, I personally think like since I started, and obviously I've only been making films for like 20 years at this point or something like that, 20 or 25 years, which just seems like a long time to you probably, but to me doesn't really seem like that long. Um, I don't think that processes have changed that much. Um, I don't think that the ways in which like a certain kind of narrative that then is kind of promulgated over and over and over again, and it's hard to sort of penetrate that. I don't think any of those have changed at all. So the question is like, how, can we find a set of strategies to propose alternative narratives, whether it's through this digital form of research, whether it's form or, or, or old archival research, um, whether it's word of mouth, eyewitness, um, whether it's uh, crowdsourced information, the question really becomes one of like kind of piecing that information together and making a series of alternative arguments, which I think are almost always present. And so kind of like the things that I was arguing about Butte, very much like the things that I'm arguing about Alabama, very much like the things I'm arguing about nuclear war now that I'm doing with that in a project, are really like they have been present for a long time. It's just a matter of assembling them and then making a kind of coherent argument that makes a sort of, um, that, is, that is meaningfully contrary to the predominant argument. Um, I don't really think that the processes have changed that much. And I think one of the things that I find interesting is that we have this radical transformation in communications technology. But one, if, if we're to look at the sort of arcs of power in US society, 
the concentration of power and wealth in, an, in, an, in, a, in a smaller and smaller number of hands has proceeded unabated as if that technology had never changed at all, right? As if it had just been a continuum. Mm -hmm. um, and I find that very surprising. Like that's, that's, that's contrary to what I would assume, but I think it sort of means that our tasks are similar um, over time, if that's a kind of adequate answer. Yeah, thank you. Um, one thing that, that makes me think about is, um, well, so as far as the present moment and how the, the present moment relates to this, um, uh, your, your talk is very much arranged uh, around places, uh, geographic places and kind of investigating them. And like what you just said, I found really compelling about, well, what's, what's there now is a clue to what happened in the past. Um, and place is really important to me. Um, and here we are, it, no place, right? Like, like, like because we're all um, quarantined and, that, and, and I can't not think of that as kind of a political tool, even if it's necessary for public health, et cetera, et cetera, still being able to like tell people go in your home and stay there and to have everybody do it it can't not be political yeah um and then when we're all so one of the things that we lose this is just me thinking out loud yeah. is is a sense of geographic place so you know this class used to meet in a geographic place and that has kind of been taken away anyway i'm curious about your thoughts um, and and I, I too like I, I do keep going back to that um, the the manifesto about that seemed to me to be very suspicious of the digital and like the way that the digital is controlled. Anyway, I don't know if I, you yeah that um, you anywhere. I mean, I I, I I think like like almost every you know like I always feel like that the ultimate way to sort of escape an answer is just to be like dialectics because then you can just sort of say like it's it's both at the same time, right? But I think that that's also true, right? So like I think I think your point is incredibly valid, which is that like we're all dispersed and we're all separated out. And so, for example, when I think about social change, I'm a person who believes that social change happens in the streets. Right, it doesn't happen in a in a in a, um, uh, a, a the House of Representatives. It doesn't happen, to my opinion, in the White House. It happens in the streets generally, right? So, what happens when the streets are completely taken away from us? Right, we have no like it's dangerous us for us to be in the streets, right? So then, the capacity for us to create unity through a physical presence is just radically altered in a way that's terrifying. And I think, like, certainly as as I think what you were implying, or I mean, I don't need to overinterpret what you were saying, but I mean, what would be a better strategy to destroy political opposition than a kind of quarantine, right? Like, which is not to say that that's why it's being done, but it's nonetheless, it has this dual, this dual power. What I wonder though, is if there's this, again, this, this is where I get into like, I don't mean to uh, you know, ridicule myself, but where I think the dialectics is interesting, which is one of the things that I also think interferes with like real political analysis is reflection. Like we're in a period where reflection is difficult. Like things happen so fast and we're so overwhelmed with information. And I think about how like that with 9-11, one of the weird switches was that that's when all of the different scrolling pieces of information first appeared on multiple different spots on the screen. Right. There had been elements of that before you'd have economic data or so forth. But but that was the first event where there was a kind of narrative on the bottom of the screen, data on the side of the screen, multiple other pictures in picture while we were watching events unfold. Um, and it's sort of interesting to think about the relationship of all of these different pieces of information to an inability to analyze anything. Right, that we're so like that's what I felt when I was 9 11, and I'm feeling it again right now. I don't know if anyone is old enough to remember that, but this sense of just like being suffocated by information that doesn't ever give us an opportunity to really understand anything, which is like a kind of funny paradox. And so perhaps in the quarantine is a space for reflection, and perhaps like to, to do some sort of more profound thinking that we don't normally have the ability to do because the time and pacing of things has changed so much. I'm not saying that's happened yet, and I'm not saying I've done it. I don't think I've been capable of it. But I feel like that maybe there's a point in a week or two where I can 
take that reflection and I can actually have, that's almost like a luxury that didn't exist with the, the pacing of other things. And I also think that there's also this way in which all of us are in a specific place that somehow is a common space, even though it's a specific space, right? Like all of us are dispersed into the quarantine. And so even if you're in one apartment in one place and each of us in the screens that I can see right here are in a different space in, in the quarantine, we had, there is something profoundly in common about this, right? I don't know that there's ever been a social crisis that has created the commonality of experience in addition to the discontinuity. You know, see what I'm saying? Like there's like this kind of, I don't know if anything has, like I think about how people always talked about a 9-11 unified people's experiences. Where were you that day? Well, now we're in this thing where this is an extended, this will go on for months, where we have this transformative historical event that we might each experience with different levels of economic security, with different size of homes, with different levels of, uh, of hygiene and safety and so forth. But we have in common the fact that we were all dispersed from one another and then tried to find some interconnection through technologies such as these. And that with reflection, it feels like could in a theoretical sense be a really powerful radical thing. But I'm not sure, I just think it's, been, it's just too, we're still in the shock phase. And so we're not conceiving of that next uh, uh, reflective phase. But, but I, I do think there's something to be said for finding strategies to be reflective of dramatic events that are unfolding. And it feels like in a, that that seems possible, even if none of us have done it yet. I mean, I'm sure someone has done it. I, I certainly haven't done it, I guess is what I mean. I, and I don't know, no one in my family has done it yet. None of us have reached mm -hmm. a place of reflection that might be useful moving forward. But I feel like there's a possibility for that to exist. Um, but balanced against the fact that, again, that normally the way that, that I, certainly when I feel politically powerful, it's when I have people that I gather with, right? It's when I'm joining, whether it's in a meeting, whether it's in a, a coffee shop or whether it's in the streets, it's people coming together in a crisis. And I've never had the sensation that I have now of the inability to come together with others in the sense of crisis. And so that, those playing against each other, I think are terrifying, fascinating. I, I think transformative for certain culture. I was just wondering, as a as a young filmmaker who is kind of navigating the field of um, just figuring out what to do with my life, uh, would it be all right if at some point in the future we reached out via email to ask questions if right now we aren't feeling super... Oh, absolutely. And that's, you know, I mean, honestly, like I... Because you're talking about not being feeling as articulate or your brain or whatever. I, I mean, I feel that way right now. Like this is the first time I've talked about ideas <laughs> in weeks. You know what I mean? Like it's, 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 it's not what we're thinking about at home right now. So, so I feel you. And, and I think like, so one of the things that I would say going back is that part of what was a unique experience to me about going to Cuba and meeting with Santiago Albert and seeing these Cuban filmmakers is here were these people who were like older filmmakers who had these extremely interesting experiences about producing work under these really weird conditions that were very interesting, right? And now they were at a point in their lives where they weren't really able to make work anymore. They didn't have the means to do it. They were getting too old. And I felt them sharing with me in a way that was really special and really unusual and like a very generous kind of like, okay, and handing it to me. And so from that point on, I always felt like knowledge is something that one, one has to be completely generous with. And so, yes, I mean, I would love to talk further down the road. And that's part of, to me, that's like the social contract of what was given to me and what I hope, you know, and then I hope someday you'll come up with some crazy ass movies and, and then they'll be, you'll be the elder and it go, you know what I mean? This is part of the, part of the beauty of it is handing it down. So yeah, I would love Other questions? Um, I'm curious. I've, I've, I don't know. Maybe, maybe two more. Sure. Um, if nobody else chimes in, but um, I'm curious about the the use of narration, mm -hmm. and if that's something that you have always done or decided to do at a certain point. It seems so integral mm -hmm. to the to the narrative aspect of, you know, you're telling us the story, you're showing us things, but you're, you're a lot of the information is coming through your voice. Right. And I've, I've gone back and forth in my own work from 
embracing that to really like not wanting to avoid it at all costs and back and forth. And so I'm just curious about your thoughts um, about that as a strategy. I mean, I feel the same way. I, I go back and forth too. And I, it's, I mean, I, I've done many films without, but it, you're right. It's become a, a really significant part of my work now. I think first and foremost, it came from that first impulse, which is just like, okay, what's available to me. Like, I don't have anything to work with. And like, I would do whatever, like in college classes and read aloud stuff and people would say, oh, you're good at that. And so I was like, at a certain point, I was like, okay, well, it's available to me. I don't have to pay anyone. I don't have to find anyone to do it for me. Okay, so th that's like a material analysis, but then it became conceptual to me because I started to realize, well, part of what frustrates me about a lot of movies is that I feel that the the sort of... Um, um, the point of view, let's talk, talk about the dra dramaturgical point of view, not necessarily the little, literal point of view, but the, the point of view of the narrative is often concealed and hidden and uh, suppressed um, in the same way that I think dominant narratives are in our society. And there's something about at a certain point that I began to admire films where it was clear to me that, that it was the voice of a person who was expressing an outlook and an analysis. And so we, we had a clear notion of, for example, um, whose opinion is this? I mean, is this mm -hmm. some sort of like, you know, is this, it's a grand, like people always talk about this notion of the voice of God, for example. And, and, and I always thought that was a peculiar term to begin with, because I'm like, I don't, God doesn't talk to me like that. So, I mean, I guess it's a reference to how other people experience religion. I don't, I don't walk around and I don't have a voice say, Travis, you need to, you know, like, I just don't. So to me, the term never made sense to me. To me, the voice of God is more like what is happening in silence and kind of compelling me to have a certain sort of notion. And so I never understood that idea. So to me, the voice was my voice. Right. And so then it's like, it's my, my outlook. And somehow that, that may seem banal, but to me, especially in a world where narratives are often deeply concealed, I felt like there was an honesty to it. And I felt like there was a way in which a person then could say, when I'm making an argument, that is an argument that might be controversial, uh, contradictory to dominant narratives might even be offensive to some people, that it's mine. And then, then the audience can position themselves in relationship to it with clarity because they know who's making this argument. Mm -hmm. And so often I'll be watching things and I'll be wondering, well, why, why does that director choose to have that other actor read that voice when it's clearly something that they've written themselves and expressed? And usually it's because, well, they wanted a better performance or something like that. And my attitude was always, well, so I'd, I'd rather embrace the inadequacies of my performance and have it be an expression of my own outlook. And so that my work becomes a, you know, we talk about the essay film, which is typically what my work is described as. But to me, I, I think of it more profoundly than that. I think that film is another, I think film is not always this way, but can be another form of literature or writing. And it's something that I very much embrace. And a lot of the works that I most respect and admire operated that way. And so I wanted to do that as well. So what I came to recognize is, look, this is a very specific, narrow way to make films. I don't propose that it's an approach that would encompass you know, the, the, the totality of cinema at all. But for me, working in the same way that I like to work, which is what's available to me, how can I express my outlook on a set of very specific circumstances? It started to make sense for it to be my voice as opposed to someone else speaking my words. And as time went on, I became more and more comfortable with, you know, with that on many different levels, including moments when I think it's awkward, moments when I don't like my performance, moments when I contradict myself, moments when I feel embarrassed, um, to me, that's all useful because then it's much, it's that much more personal. That, I like that. That's helpful. Um, so maybe, so unless anybody else jumps in, um, last question. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, no, it's just me. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, I got, I got one small thing. Go for it. Um, so talking about current times, coronavirus, all that scary stuff. Um, I'm seeing this notion of like staging rent strikes going around on the internet a whole lot. Do you have any particular opinions on that based in your, in your just field of research? I mean, I guess I would just say that I think that, that when there's an emergence of it and a tendency to assert um, uh, autonomy and independence about something profound, and that's an issue of survival. Um, I think that's exciting. And I think, you know, what, one of the things I think is weird about this particular, and I, and I want to be clear, I mean, this is a disaster for humanity and I don't want to, I don't want to like talk about silver linings, but I, but I think, do, do, I think sort of, sort of crises produce kind of new solutions. And I've never heard people talk about landlords and rent <laughs> with the same force and intensity that they're doing right now. And I think that's an overdue conversation. 
I think it's an overdue conversation that we're having such an intense discussion about public health. Um, it's, I mean, to say it's overdue is, of course, outrageously inadequate. I mean, it's grotesquely uh, um, overdue. So I think both of those things would be examples of, like, there are ways for us, we, it's not to pretend that this is, the, let's, let's see what the positive side of this is. It's just nonetheless, in moments of crisis, there are always opportunities to push things forward that are progressive and important sort of social human developments. And I would see it as regard to that. And I think that that's a place where media and our technology that we're using right now can be really powerful because individuals who are making a decision about rent and going on rent strike, they're going to need to feel that there is solidarity from others, whether it's other tenants, whether it's other people who are engaged in the same struggle. And this is a place where this kind of technology can be really powerful and can affirm that solidarity because in a sense of isolation, it's going to be impossible and one is fearful that you're the only person in your building who's not going to be paying rent and going to be evicted. Um, so again, I don't, I, I'm not saying, oh, it's, you know, it's a, it's a positive thing to come out of this, but I think crisis always creates uh, opportunities, whether we're able to take advantage of them, whether we're, we're able to seize them or not. And I don't wish to pretend that I typically am able to seize opportunities from crisis. I think like most people, most crisis produces just crisis for me. Um, <laughs> But when I'm thinking clearly, that's kind of the way I'm trying to think about this. Word. Thank you. Um, so I was wondering if you uh, were willing to say anything about your current project, just to sure. kind of lead us into the future a little bit. Yeah. Um, I have been following a little bit on Facebook your... your uh, well, and this is related in a way that I, I still don't know what to do with this. So, so I've been working on a project for about the last year about the infrastructure of nuclear war in the U.S. Um, so, you know, I grew up in the American West and I was surrounded by infrastructure of nuclear war. I grew up near Rocky Flats before we moved to, which is in Colorado, which was the main nuclear weapons building facility before we moved up further north to Montana, where most of the main um, missile uh, uh, missile silos and missile facilities were. So we built the weapons down in Colorado and then shipped them up to, to Montana, Wyoming, uh, North Dakota, Omaha, near, near Omaha, Nebraska, and a few other areas there. Actually, uh, northeastern Colorado has a ton of silos, believe it or not. Um, and that's where the weapons are, you know, are deployed, so to speak. And so I wanted to sort of explore these questions around a kind of apocalyptic outcomes, the sort of infrastructure of apocalypse that was kind of being ignored by everyone. And I did it in the context of a, a recreation of some of the stuff that happened in my childhood. My, my mom was, at, you know, coming out of her anti-racist activism and my father's anti-war activism. They both became very active on um, issues of nuclear war. So when I was growing up, we were Conscious, you know, constantly talking about the possibilities of nuclear war, advocating disarmament, advocating nuclear freeze, um, advocating test bans, and so on and so forth throughout my childhood, participating in all that stuff. And one of the things that we used to do is we used to take family trips where we would go and do tours of nuclear facilities and, and talk about. <laughs> so, for example, we'd go and have a picnic near a nuclear missile silo, and we would talk about what that nuclear missile would do if it landed on our house, and all these kinds of things that seemed like very extreme and, and, and terrifying. Um, to talk about, but also were kind of funny and playful. So I thought, well, let's take that further and let's make a whole summer road trip that's like my childhood. Um, so we did three months and we went through 16 states and we went to uh, 30 different nuclear silos and multiple different testing facilities. I mean, you would you would not believe how many nuclear weapons I've been within a few feet of in the last six months or nine months. But okay, so I got to a place where the film was almost finished, and that was like I was gonna I was trying to get it done in time for the Berlin Film Festival would happen in February February. I felt that I was a week or two away from it. And so with great um, ambivalence, I sort of um, told them that I would need to continue to work on it. And then all this shit at the family. And so then it was suddenly like, well, how does one make a movie about conditions that feel incredibly similar to the conditions that we're feeling right now, right? Like suddenly this like like I mean, I'm telling you, six months ago when I was talking to people about this film, they were laughing, they were being playful, they were like, oh, you know, they thought it was like a kind of wacky thing. No one will interpret it that way now because it will suddenly radically have changed and suddenly like sort of everything I'm implying in the film, we've done a kind of smaller version of now um, and it's been not good. We are not prepared for it. So what that means in terms of the film moving forward, I don't know the answer to that. And I've spent a few weeks with my head spinning and trying to figure out what is the concluding, there needs to be something concluding because this has changed the entire way that one would perceive the film. Um, and, and uh, you know, I created this kind of like, 
<laughs> I kept trying to say, well, if you only take three things away from the film, it would be that um, that nuclear war is batshit crazy um, and, and that um, it's our fault um, and that um, no one cares about it really. Right? I had to keep trying to like think about, you know, that, that it's very scary. I need to find these ways to express these like basic truths about it. And now I feel like I don't really need to as much. Like I need to find a way to sort of frame it that's useful and socially progressive and not just like, oh yeah, after we get over this, then there's this other terrifying thing that's looming over. You know what I mean? Like it, I feel like it's radically altered the sort of whole discussion of it. And I, I'm, I'm glad. I mean, I I'm, I'm certainly would prefer that I have to confront that limitation in the film before the film is finished than having finished the film two months ago and then have it suddenly feel obsolete because of the reality. Um, at the same time, I don't simply want something banal or cute. You know what I'm saying? Like it needs to be, like it needs to be a real, so I, it's like I, I've written a voiceover and I, I did that whole thing is edited. I mean, it's, I was just, I was just going to finish the voiceover and now I feel like I have to rewrite the voiceover. I feel like I have to kind of start it over again and um, find different ways to sort of make, I, I don't want the film to be utterly redirected. I just want the film to feel like it's not existing out of time and place. And I think that would be a terrible mistake too, um, because I think it would be dishonest. And so how I navigate that, I'm not entirely sure, but that's, you know, that's the fun of being filmmaking. <laughs> I mean, I don't, it's not fun right now, but um, it's, it's the interesting challenge. So so that's what I'm working on now. But like I said, as, as it currently exists, got a hundred minute cut of it, I've got, um, I've got a, a score from if thousands from up in Duluth. They, they got back together and did the oh, score. Nice. I've got, uh, it's fantastic. I mean, it's all, it's got graphic, it's got everything except the final voiceover, which I have to kind of scrap and start over again. So I, I don't know if that'll take me two weeks. Or it'll take me two months. I think it depends on what's happening in the world, honestly. That's, I, I somehow need to reflect on that in a more profound way. I do think one thing that it's told me is that whatever were this, 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 the, okay, the fundamental sense of terror that I had, that we were utterly unprepared for the situation that we had created. <laughs> I, I'm sorry to say it seemed, that seems more relevant now than ever. And certainly the argument is if we're not prepared for this, then we're definitely not prepared for a nuclear war. Um, so. um, I can't wait to see it whatever form it ends up taking. Um, well, I think um, that is kind of a good place to leave things. I really appreciate like, uh, it's so, the way that you framed everything is so perfect for what we just, you know, the situation that we're dealing with, which is like, especially what you said about um, filling in the gaps, you know? So it's like, we have this really limited palette or like like limited access to like we can't we can't use the super eight cameras they're all in lockdown um but so the the very relevant question is okay with the limited resources and materials and equipment and you know freedom of movement that we have how can yeah. we make something interesting um yeah so that's exactly where we're at at this point i guess what, one thing i would suggest just to sort of wind down on that because i thought about it a lot is I think one of the challenges right now is that what's probably not going to be that interesting is like things about the situation, right? Like what's going to be more interesting is like, what are the stories we can tell from within the confines of the situation, but are not precisely about the situation, but are rather shaped by the situation. So mm -hmm. like I, my proposal would be, well, let's think about, you know, what is a, what is a romantic comedy in the context of being in lockdown? You know, what is a, what is a horror film in the context of being what is a noir? You know what I'm saying? Like thinking about these other things that then these conditions could produce some really interesting innovations in filming because they're so strange. As long as we don't simply lose sight of how interesting it is by focusing on the moment, which is so overwhelming to all of us. And I'm, and I'm not standing above that. I'm wrestling with those questions myself. Like how can I, how can I say something about the world now that it, when the world is so limp, when my view of the world is so deeply limited by my claustrophobia within the quarantine, and I think all of us are facing. Yeah, and you uh, you have a small child too, right? So you're I do I have two small children. Yeah, yeah, I too. trapped in a house I, with with yeah. small children. Yeah, <laughs> I can relate to that. 
Yeah, it's a whole adventure. And it's like, it's funny because like I have a, I have a three-year-old, a six-year-old and like at times they're trying to kill each other, but it also at other times I feel like they're becoming like closer and more intense than they ever would have in any other context. And I feel like that's like a weird aspect of the quarantine too, is the ways in which it distorts social relations, both in terms of alienating us from one another, but also maybe like pushing us together in ways that can be kind of weird. And I don't know, that could be a part of the film too, I think, but. I don't have any ideas. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Travis, for- Thanks all of you. Stay safe. This is a crazy time. I really, you know, being just allowed to be, to think about ideas and filmmaking right now, I'm really grateful. So thank to all of you for letting me do that. It's nice for me. Yeah, I think, I feel like this is very good for all of our brains uh, to exercise a little bit. And then please let everybody know to just reach out to me and and I'm happy to communicate. This is a great time to be in communication with people. Fantastic. Um, Well, thank you, Travis.